Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us once again on Battle Walks. It's an exciting time of the year where uh, we're getting close to when the battlefield touring season kicks off for real again. We get out, get to get out and walk the battlefields. I should introduce him, some, someone straight away who loves getting out walking the battlefields, my co-host Pete Smith. Pete, we were just saying how great it is to be out walking around again on the battlefields. It is. Well, I've been uh, out touring today, so uh, just at the end of a, just a two-day tour, so I'm breaking myself in gently. Um, yeah, so great, great. I'm kind of suntanned. No, I'm not. It was uh, it was freezing. It was windy, but it was good to be out on the battlefield. So yeah, it's still February. Let's not forget that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I lied. I was it's not, it wasn't sunny. <laughs> I was listening the other day to one of our very early episodes, Pete, right in the middle of COVID, and how much has changed? You know, we were talking about one day in the far off future we'll be able to get back to the battlefields. And here we are doing it. It's it's changed relatively quickly, hasn't it? It's great to see how many people are coming back. If yeah. you said um, if you said how's the battlefield touring industry looking, I would say busy. Lots of people are heading to the battlefields, which is great to see. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It's good fun up at the gate last night, uh, the Menning Gate, uh, listening to the last post, and then down to my favourite little bookshop. Uh, my my friend, the Grumpy Canadian, and bought a few books from him. I always meant managed to buy a few books every time I visit Eep. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it felt very normal. Thank thank goodness. Your favourite little bolt hole. I think you described. <laughs> yeah, it. I did. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, if you don't forget, listeners, if you want to join us on a on a battlefield tour, you certainly can. There's a lot of great reasons to go to the battlefields in 2023, including not least of which the Rugby World Cup, which is being held in France. I mean, that's reason enough to go to France. Pete, I know you're a fan of the, the rugby ball. Um, it's reason enough to go that the World Cup is on. But when you can combine it with a walk through the battlefields, it's a, you know, that's a pretty special trip. 
Yeah, I'm a fan of the English rugby ball. Let's just make that absolutely clear. Um, yes, it is. That will be. I never would have picked how... that from your accent. Ebago. <laughs> <laughs> how uh, how exciting! Uh, rugby and the battlefields. What more could you ask for? And we've got lots of um, of our four day explorer tours, which are um, the the dates we've chosen this year specifically fit in with the key rugby matches. So if you're heading over to the battlefields, particularly as an Australian, if you're heading over to the Rugby World Cup, you can walk the battlefields and uh, enjoy one of our tours. So visit our website to find out all those details. Pete, we are going to do a walk today, which it's a little bit of a different one. It's not one that I have much experience with at all. So you're going to be leading me around as much as the listeners, but it's the village of Cassell. Is that how we decided we say it? Castle. (laughs) Castle. Uh, we've just been discussing this. I even put the name into a French translatory thing so that it would speak it in a French accent as how we say it. And it is definitely Castle with more of a French accent. Castle. But I'm just going with a Northern accent, Castle. So it's going to be called Castle. This is C-A-S-S-E-L. It is indeed. C-A-S-T-L-E. It's not Castle as in a ramp, you know, as in a turreted building. We're talking about the little French town, but what a significant town. I can't believe I haven't been here. When we were having this discussion before we started recording and reading your extensive notes, I was just amazed that I've never found the time to get there because this has incredible World War I history, very significant World War I history, but amazing World War II history as well, all in the one little town. Yeah, and, and even, even, even better, it was voted France's favourite village in 2018 on a popular TV programme in France. Um, which I find quite I always extra- wonder with those things, what happens, what happens the next year? Like, what happened to the town in 2019 that they decided it was no good anymore? Yeah, well, uh, well I have to say, it is a great little place, but I, I've certainly been to what I would describe as more, more beautiful uh, uh, French villages. But this one, it's because of where it is, the views from it, as you, as you will uh, begin to realise as we go, get on with the podcast spectacular so it's at the top of a hill which is uh, the, uh one of the more interesting things and so and yeah the history around it goes back to almost to dot so uh, we get the romans there the local tribes tribes there and uh, history unbelievable but it's a great place by the time we get through pre-roman roman medieval you know the dutch and the french scrapping around cassel yeah. and all these other battles, we're not going to have time for the first and second world war. Or it's going to be a three-hour <laughs> no, podcast, so we might have to uh, we might have to skip over those a little bit more quickly to get to the the key stuff. But but you chose this one, Pete, for a very specific reason because this this dovetails neatly with the, with a, a fantastic tour we've got coming up that you're going to be leading later in the year. Indeed. So in doing the research notes for uh, this um, podcast, I've also been kind of uh, sorting out the routes for our walking tour, which uh, takes place uh, in uh, October. Is it October? October. Yeah, in in October. So looking forward to leading that. And and what we've tried to do is add... This is our battle tactics, battle tactics on the Western Front tour, our our in-depth experts tour, effectively, a really in-depth study of the battlefields for people Mm. who've either been before or are going for the first time but want to know what went on during the First World War on the ground. It's a very specific enthusiast tour. We can't wait. Very exciting. Yeah, and this is the one of the locations. I want to do a behind-the-lines uh, uh, location. And so this is uh, my behind-the-lines location. We're going to be walking. <laughs> Perhaps we're going to start at the top and walk down rather than start at the bottom and walk up. I thought, I thought let's not be too cruel. Um, so uh, we're going to... Uh, cover the town, walk around the town, go up and down the streets. And we're going to be talking about both the First and the Second World War because during the First World War, it's behind the lines, but during the Second World War, it's very much in the front line. So um, we can cover both the Great War and the Second World War uh, as well. 
As part of reading my notes, Pete, I'm sure we'll get to it in detail, but reading my notes for this podcast as well, just doing some research, I noted during the retreat to Dunkirk the villages that were fortified by the British and defended very strongly against the advancing Germans to protect the beachhead at Dunkirk in 1940. But so many famous names from the First World War and fighting sweeping yep. through there again, just just extraordinary. In our podcast about Hill 60, we talked all about this, about how the, the, the fighting returned to to these key tactical places in, in the Second World War. Because I suppose if they were tactically important in the First World War, they were going to be again during the Second World War. And I just, I, I cannot, I never can help but think on both sides what it must have meant to those men fighting there in the Second World War to note that they were crossing ground that had been so heavily fought over the first time around. Well, I think some of them, of course, some of the senior officers and and a lot of the men, a lot of the senior NCOs and uh, and senior officers had actually fought there in the First World War. So it's even it's even stranger. They are actually back where they'd fought as young men fighting fighting again in 1940. So extraordinary, with very different results this time around. Indeed, no matter which yep. side you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Well, that's a really exciting one, Pete. Why don't we get cracking on the walk? Because I'm really looking forward to it. Can you tell us a little bit about where uh, Castle is located in France? Right. Well, it's in the no- uh, the d- department uh, du Nord, so the northern department, the most northern depart- department uh, in France, uh, almost abutting Belgium. But from, in fact, from the top of the of the hill where the town is actually situated, we can see into Belgium. You can see all, uh, almost all the way to Ypres, and, and certainly towards the battlefields. So e- extensive views. Um, it's um, uh, a high hill. I've got the height uh, somewhere. Let's see where I, I scribble down the notes of how high it is. Uh, 176 metres. Yeah. Correct. Thank you, Matt. 176 metres or 577 feet in the old uh, the old bunny. Um, so uh, extraordinary views across to Dunkirk. We can actually see Dunkirk. We can see the coast from here. So, uh, yeah, a, a extraordinary location, high in remembering that Flanders, traditionally our mental kind of view of Flanders, for those that have been, for those that have studied the battlefields, the fighting around Fromel, the fighting, uh, uh, well, onto the salients are almost uh, completely flat or near as damn it flat. Well, this is not. This is uh, a, a uh, there are actually a series of hills, but this is the most important for um, both the First World War as a rear area and the Second World War as a, as a defensive location, protecting that withdrawal to uh, to Dunkirk. Um, hey, just a little side question here. Have you ever seen on a map the, the hill that is the town of Castle? Referred to as Hill One Seven Six, noting how the British used to uh, used to number their hills based on their height. No, but I, I bet you it is somewhere. I bet you it is noted as Hill One Seven Six on something. Um, but no, I haven't. I don't recall uh, off the top of my head seeing it. But yeah, it may be. It could. It, it could be. Um, Sorry, slight slight side note there. I was just interested to know because they they yeah. did have a habit of naming hills. Well, famously Hill Sixty, sixty meters <laughs> high. So, uh, sorry, I'll let you carry on. No, it's going to no, so be too many, what, too many more mathematical questions anymore. I'll yeah, just uh, yeah, exactly. get on with the, the yeah, history podcast. Yeah. I don't like fastballs. I have no idea. Um, I shouldn't have been the better <laughs> answer. Um, no, so I, I don't know. But yeah, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of, uh, of, of possibility at all. Um, so... Uh, as I say, voted um, one of the favourite villages. So that gives you a start of a feel of what it's like. The architecture is a combination of rebuilt, so it's rebuilt because it, w- it was badly damaged in uh, 1940 uh, and a little more damaged in 1944, in fact. But the the, the worst damage is, is from 1940. 
it has a, a certain Spanish air about it because it was uh, um, built, past it had been built by the Spanish, so it would have a Spanish feel. Uh, and now certainly it would feel like when we go into Ypres and look at that Flemish architecture, those, those beautiful uh, frontages to the houses, then it has that as well. So it's a, it is, a, I have to say, it is an attractive town. It was a fortified town, so it did have walls all, uh, all around it. Not much left of the actual walls because the buildings themselves form, form the walls, but we do have gateways. We have gateways, we drive through gateways uh, uh, to enter the town so you start to get a feel of what what it's like it's a it's a very attractive town with a slightly run down air about it you would have to say it doesn't it looks a little unkempt sometimes well not sometimes a lot of the time but it isn't I quite like that feel of it not being it's not a kind of a, a highly polished uh, tourist destination. It feels like it's lived in, which it is. It is a, a, a working town. There are people from the farms round about living there, people that work in some of the businesses round about. But it's also got some nice hotels and restaurants, and that's what brings quite a lot of people to the town itself. And what's fascinating, these hotels are hotels and restaurants that in, in some cases, in fact in quite a lot of cases, were operational both before the First World War, during the First World War and during the Second World War. They've marginally changed because of damage in the Second World War, but they're in the same locations and many of them carrying the same names as well. Pete, you mentioned uh, the town, well, authentic is I think, I think a word you'd use to describe the town in terms of it's lived and worked in isn't that just a great thing about visiting the battlefields that, that it takes us to these places we wouldn't normally go this is as far off the tourist track as you could probably get and most people visiting france would would never even think of coming to to this region let alone this town um, but this incredible history takes us there yeah, I think I think actually that there are probably more people visit the town who are interested in the retreat to Dunkirk than people that are are following the First World War battlefields because it's a behind the behind the lines location, which is interesting for us when we're discussing what went on and decision making and and also the rest areas, people coming to rest here, especially officers coming up to the town and partying effectively before heading back to the front. So it's it's close to the front. It's a place where you could come for a weekend or for a couple of days rather than going your on what we normally perceive the traditional 10-day leave that takes you to England or to Paris. This is a local leave where uh, where men and, and officers can come out of the uh, of the lines for a few days and relax and have a beer and everything else that soldiers need and back into the uh, back into the fray again in a few days. The other thing that I thought was interesting there, Pete, when you were describing the town is these real frontier towns. We don't, we don't think of them today. You know, they're, they're yep. up near the Belgian border or, you know, on the way to the Netherlands. Uh, we don't really think of them as frontier towns today. But a couple of centuries ago, these were right in the, you know, the, these were the northern outposts of the French Empire. The, we think of those other towns like Peron and uh, Le Quinois that we've talked about, where the New Zealanders were, yep. these walled towns, Ypres itself, these yep. walled towns and cities that really formed this defensive bastion in the north of France and it's uh, it's reflective of a very different era uh, in Europe at the time yeah, and, th- and this one is actually, uh, they didn't need to fortify it as with the star-shaped forts of Vauban that we see uh, working and fortifying these towns because it's up on the top of the hill. You didn't need any of that. You are, you you don't need to build lots of very, very tough defences because in itself where it is means it overlooks the roads and men can sally out from the town to to uh, defeat an enemy before he uh, before he actually gets up to the castle so or gets up to the uh, the, the village and the town and the fortified town on the top. So it's it was a very important point and it goes right the way back to the Romans the Romans built the major straight roads in this area and this is where they they overlooked the roads and they could defend the roads by coming out from the, from the fortifications they built on the top of the hill so so right the way back to Roman times it was it was important 
Well, important question for you now, Pete. Did you want to give us a history of the town prior to the First World War? Or are we going to suffice it to say that a lot, an awful lot of fighting and battles and yeah. and intrigue went on in the centuries leading up to the First World War? I have to say, for those that are listening and are very interested, it is interesting. I've got pages and pages of it that I would I don't know how to to, to actually condense into something that is uh, easily readable for a podcast. Uh, but let's just put it this way. There's a hell of a lot of history before the period that we are... Uh, are really interested in the first and the uh, the Great War and the and the Second World War, um, uh, and it is changing hands constantly. As as Matt quite rightly said, it is it is like a border town. It is it is right on where there's a there's an awful lot happening. I mean, a lot of that is because of literally where it is. It's in a fertile uh, fertile area. Great for for growing crops. It's near the coast, so people coming up and down the coast can be seen and raiders. So it's such an important spot for the early development of man that the history is is extensive in the period uh, uh, that we're not going to cover in great detail prior to the Great War. Well, it's probably a good point, though, as well, Pete, as we tend to look at the First World War in isolation, even the Second World War, even though the fighting returned to this area, we tend to look at these events in isolation. But if you think there's a hilltop town in 1914 or there's a hilltop town in 1940 that town was also going to be vitally important in yeah. 1671 or 1583 or yeah. whenever else a marauding army came through yeah, the, these elements have a habit of repeating themselves and the weapons change and the training changes and the the volume of men changes dramatically by the time yeah. we get to the great war and the, and the second world war um but the the strategic um the strategic importance of, of areas uh, doesn't change at all no, not, not, not at all. Um, population, just to give people an idea, 2,300 people living there. Now, I suspect there's quite a few holiday homes here that may be not occupied full-time. Um, in the mid-19th century, 4,200 people, so it's decreased, and not a surprise. All of the villages that, that I've ever studied in, in northern France, are, are the population is far less than, than it was uh, in the mid-19th century. Well, let's walk through the town, Pete. Where are we going to start? Well, we're going to start, and in fact, we can do an awful lot without moving, to be honest. We can sit in the bar or it's one my of kind, the... Uh... My, wait, wait, wait. A battle walk <laughs> yeah. from a bar. Yeah. That yeah. is my kind of battle walk. I, I hasten to add, there may be a little of that in the walking tour, but we will not be conducting the walking tour totally from the bar. We will uh, we will be walking around the town. Uh, but the bar in the centre of town in the Grand Place is an ideal uh, place to start because from it we can see some of the key features uh, uh, of the town, some of the buildings that will feature both in the in the first and the the Second World War. So um, we're looking down into the square from a slightly raised. Uh, Pavement, so the pavement is raised above the square, and uh, behind us are the uh, are the uh, the bars and the uh, the tea rooms, and we're sitting outside one of those, glass in hand, looking down, and if we look to our left. Then we're, which is actually in the direction of Ypres. So looking to our left, we're looking to, uh, towards it. We can't see it from the town square. We're going to walk up to where we can get a view towards Ypres uh, later on. But we can see the uh, the large church, uh, the large Notre Dame de la Crypte, uh, which is the main church uh, in Castle, uh, dating to the 11th century. So again, a little bit about the about the history. Um, it was known as the Hall Church uh, because it has a style of a hall. It's a big hall inside, very typical for those types of churches built in in Flanders and the Artois region. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, because we're on the cusp, Flanders, can French Flanders or Belgian Flanders, and the Artois um, is 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 within France uh, nowadays. The Artois, uh, old old fashioned regions, now both part of Haute de France, High France. Um, 
Marshall uh, Foch, when he uh, was based here, and he was based here in 1914 and 1915, he used to regularly go into the church and pray there. And inside, uh, you can find a plaque commemorating both his son and his son-in-law who were killed in the Battles of the Frontiers in 1914. Now, that is something I'd really like to do a podcast on. It's the French fighting on the frontier in 1914. Just unbelievably terrible casualties. Won't say anything else. It's just that... We know little about it, we being the British and the Commonwealth forces, the Empire troops. Our interest still is really in our efforts on the Western Front, and occasionally we talk about the French, but their casualties in the Battle of the Frontiers in fourteen truly horrendous. Um, so something we can perhaps look at in, in, in the future. Anyway, back to Marshall Foch, well, since we're... Just, I was just sorry, going to add go there on. about the French, Pete. Um, their casualties in one of those one of those days were more costly than the first day of the Somme. The oh yes, yeah. M- many, many, many more. Yeah, uh, yeah m- much more costly. I think I also- twenty-seven thousand men in a yeah. single day killed. Twenty-seven thousand killed. Yeah. So yeah. it's just extraordinary. We, we absolutely, obviously, this is a whole separate subject. We should ring the little, uh, the little tangent yeah. bell. But the French get a bad rap because of the perceived yeah. capitulation during the Second World War. But anyone that knows about the fighting on the Western Front knows that for the majority of the war, the French carried the bulk of the load. Everyone contributed, but the French yep. did as much as anyone on the yep. on the Western Front. The other thing I wanted to talk about there, Pete, that you just touched on is so Foch, the great Allied commander, <clears throat> excuse me, lost both his son and his son in law very, yep. very early in the war. Exactly. And you've got to ask the question, what effect did that have on him? You know, we, we think of these great men, we see the, the, the statue of Foch triumphantly on his horse, you know, in Paris. And you just have to wonder what effect that had on them, that huge personal loss. Normally, a family would take many years to grieve. He can't do that. He's got to get back and he's got to win a war. But I just wonder, um, there's no answer, of course, but I wonder what how that changed his outlook on this war and his attitude to the Germans and, and, and just his mental state, particularly having lost, lost a son and a son-in-law so early in the fighting. Well, I think we can see by the end by the end of the war, he's he's the the driving force of the belief that we should have continued into Germany as we will do in the Second World War and give the Germans a damn good hammering. Um, he was not of the belief that the war should have finished on the eleventh of uh, of November in nineteen eighteen. He his comment is that if we don't do that, if we do not hammer the Germans into the ground in nineteen eighteen and force them right the way back to the borders of Germany and into Germany, they will in twenty his his prediction in twenty years time they will come again. And uh, yet you have to say he was proved to be right. Um, so well, he so, was yeah. well founded in history because it was only what 40 years between franco-prussian yeah. war and the first world war <laughs> you know, so yeah. the, the yeah. germans were um they did have a you know, predilection for marching into france <laughs> yeah. on a whim at yeah. that time yeah yeah in, uh, anyway, indeed sorry so, that was that was that was an aside but just a fascinating you know again these these elements of history we see a little plaque in a church and it opens up this whole aspect of command and Foch and the the, the yeah. politics of the war that i hadn't considered before fascinating yeah. Yes, and interestingly, he is also commemorated here, riding on a horse. So there is a bronze statue of him, uh, of, of him here, which we'll come across uh, later on dur- uh, during the uh, the walk around the town. Um, I just should say as well, Foch or Foch, I'm not quite so sure how we're saying it nowadays. Over the over the years, it changes. I've always stuck to Foch because that is uh, how I learnt in the early years of uh, my education of the Great War. Um, but I'm not sure if that's what we're saying now. Did the, you know the, French say, the French say the French say Yeah, not, there's yeah. an obvious there's yeah. an obvious reason in English for us to. <laughs> Meander a little bit away from that pronunciation, so we tend to go. I with don't the, know what you mean. The 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 likely incorrect, but 
Lower lower risk of saying a bad word yeah. on a podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, <exactly>. posh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so back to uh, back to his story. So um, he was here uh, during 1914, 1915, during the race to the sea, um, and he'd previously been based in Doulon, which is not that far away from where I'm recording at the moment, uh, uh, just on the in the department of the Somme, and um, he will move his headquarters, uh, and it was that was north of Amiens just to put it in its perspective, he will move his headquarters here to, to Castle because he felt it was uh, strategically a, an interesting point. He gets a view over the battlefields. It's ne- nearer to the Belgian headquarters at Verne and the British headquarters, which at that time was at Saint-Omer. So, so he moves to here. So he made this uh, his, his headquarters. And uh, he based himself on uh, uh, the first floor of the Hotel de la Noble Care, the Noble Heart, um, which is now the Museum of Flanders. So it's uh, it's directly, almost directly opposite, slightly left of where we're sitting. So we can uh, we can see the Museum of Flanders across the square, and that's where where he was. Uh, he based himself. So we are surrounded by by places and buildings and locations that are very relative to the occupation here, uh, or not the occupation, the the senior command that based it, it, itself it, itself uh, here. I love it, Pete. And can I put in a special request? Can we do a podcast on Doulon at some stage? Because I have been to Doulon and the you know the room where yeah. Foch was appointed Generalissimo, yeah. and it's it's I love it. It's a great town. It's and it, it, uh, there's something about that history to be able to go to the the towns behind the lines like Castle, like Doulon, yeah. and see these buildings that obviously weren't destroyed by shellfire. Castle, slight exception because of 1940, but uh, there's something about I absolutely love. It's it, it adds such an extra dimension to the story of the First World War to go to these chateaus that were headquarters, these beautiful old buildings that were headquarters during yep. 14, 18. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and I couldn't agree more. And certainly, Doulon is a, an exceptionally interesting place because of its Vauban fortifications there as well. So, lots to talk about there. So, yeah, I'll put that on the list. Add of, that to uh, the list. Fantastic. And also, uh, I should mention, I should mention when we're talking about these sorts of things, not these two towns specifically, but we did a video which is on YouTube, which you can watch for free. Uh, Pete and I walking around um, some of these towns behind the lines. And that's what we called it, World War One behind the lines. So if you haven't seen that, go and check it out because it was basically, Pete, a fun day where we got the chance to just go and explore some of these sites behind the lines that uh, that you would normally overlook when you're on the battlefields. We'd have to do that again, Matt, because that's some time ago now, isn't it? It, uh, it, it was 2019. It yeah, yeah, yeah. So just back in the days COVID. when we Pre-COVID. back in the days where we thought we could just travel freely, we thought we'd be back the following year. Little did we yeah. know. Indeed, and anyway, so let's carry on. So we'll keep we'll keep on the Foch theme just for uh, a minute. So uh, a little bit further to our left, it's actually just out of sight from where we're sitting. It doesn't matter; we can discuss it. There's a his accommodation. Now this is one of those fiddly, uh, fiddly Frenchy kind of Flemishy names. Uh, so so it's called the Chatellery de Schurbeck, possibly. I think you've nailed well, it, Pete. I think that's fine. Well, for those for those that have listened to our podcast before, you'll know that uh, French uh, and uh, and Flemish pronunciations not my forte. Uh, all I can say is look it up, <laughs> have a look at where he stayed. <laughs> so um, that's where Foch actually based himself. Uh, in that was his accommodation, um, and it was a, a private house, a rather smart private house. It's it still is. It's on uh, the road that is now called the Rue de Marshal Foch. So uh, and there's a, a plaque commemorating the road's link to. Him him and the house is linked to him interestingly 
when Field Marshal Hay came here, not at the same time that Fosh was here, it's after Fosh was there, he also made his, his uh, accommodation. I've just scribbled down a little note here. I wonder if they use the same bed. <laughs> so not at the same time, I hasten to add. But it just, it just suddenly occurred to me, it, they would almost certainly be in the, the smartest room in this private house that had been taken over by the senior officers. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, if previously uh, the bed had been used by Fosh and then used by Marshal Hay, You'd have to say uh, almost certainly, Hay, wouldn't you? You, you would. Say almost you certainly. Would. They'd be in the master bedroom of the house. We've seen yeah. this at places like uh, Bertong, yeah. uh, Monash's yeah. headquarters, that yeah. it was occupied by the British and then the Australians, and then in the Second World War, the British and then the Germans. And always yeah. the master bedroom was where the commanding officer set himself yeah. up. And I, I can't imagine yeah. they're changing the mattresses every time yeah. someone Why it in. popped into my head, I have no idea. But I just thought, I wonder if they both <laughs> use the same bed. So anyway, just interesting little... Definitely bang, not bang. at the same time. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, <laughs> so anyway, others others of the great and good that uh, set, uh, had their headquarters here. Uh, Sir Herbert Plummer, um, Plummer as he's known to most people, and will become uh, Plummer of Messine. Um, uh, during that fighting, during when we're planning and preparing for the Battle of Messine, this was also his uh, headquarters quarters but he set himself up in the casino the casino sadly no longer there i have to say it was not a particularly attractive building but it was right on the top uh we're going to walk there there are gardens there now um and th- that's where uh, demolished demolished in 2010 that's where he had his uh his his headquarters um, when you say I- casino pete you mean like you mean a house of gambling I do. It was a casino, but I suspect not while he was there. I don't think he was doing a bit of gambling on the side, um, uh, but it was, uh, yeah, it was the the casino. Yeah, indeed. Let off Um, a bit of steam after a hard day in headquarters by playing a hand of poker or something. Yeah. Um, so the town kind of it's it avoided why I'm talking about the casino because it was a big old building you'd think it would be an easy target but it it, it avoided the shell fire when the Germans advanced to within 18 kilometres so they were only 11 miles uh, away from from the town uh, during 1918 in their spring off- offensive operation Georgette in this area so they did get quite close but uh, not close enough to do any significant damage but it, it certainly was in range for a, a short period in uh, uh, in 1918. Uh, and just on that subject, sorry, again, yeah. not to go off on a tangent, but uh, as I said, this is fascinating for me, this this area. Just at that phase in 1918 when the Germans were closing in on these towns but weren't successful in capturing them, how much artillery fire were they raining on these towns? Was it was it simply a case that the Germans fired their guns a specific area in front of their yeah. armies so as they advanced, gunfire got closer to the towns? Or were they specifically targeting these towns to knock them out in hopes of attacking them later? Yeah, I, th- I think it depends on what, which towns we're talking about. And I think strategically this one probably was not that important. Um, but if we look at places like Balil, completely flattened. I, I do actually wonder about these places sometimes, whether it's us that are flattening them. Because you have to remember by 1918, the Germans are running out of steam it, 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 during these attacks. And it's during our counterattacks as we force them back from the towns that they've captured. I do often wonder if the damage is actually not that much the Germans, but it's actually us in our unbelievable firepower that we can bring to bear in 1918. So Balil, a nearby town, completely, utterly flattened. Hasbrook, also close by, flattened. Um, and is that because they were taken by the Germans and it's our counterfire that actually will will destroy them? So I, I think it's a bit of both, really. Because Castle will, will not be taken, 
it doesn't have that 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 issue of being fired at by both sides, being fired at by us when it's taken. It's just going to be the German odd shell. So it, it is a thought that has crossed my mind several times that the great destruction in 1918, as we force the Germans back for the final time, is it us that is doing the major damage to some of these towns that have been taken by the Germans. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think, uh, again, um, add to the list uh, a more thorough investigation yeah, of the indeed. German Spring Offensive because it's a fascinating yeah. chapter and we, we don't know enough about it. We tend to skip over it pretty quickly when we talk about the... Uh the, the history of 1918. So that would yeah. be another good one to add to your list. <laughs> it's on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go off to, on a tangent here, which is uh, something I, I, I often do. And um, some of you will know this name. Some of you may not know the name, but William Orpen, who is a British artist, uh, he actually uh, based himself here in, um, in 19... Um, uh, 15 uh, and I think in 1916, uh, 17. He was backwards and forwards from it. So I'm just trying to find my notes on him. I've actually managed to delete my notes on, on him. Here we go. William uh, Orpen in Castle. So Major Sir William Newham Montague Orpen is his full title, KBE, RHA. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was uh, a portrait painter. Um, and uh, prior to the war, and in fact during the war, he's really uh, sought after by the great and good who would like uh, society portraits done, and he painted Hague. In fact, he painted most of the senior command uh, at various times during or just after the war. But in 1917, so it's not 1915, uh, it's 1917, he was appointed as an official war artist um, and came out uh, to France to uh, set up to to draw. Uh, and, and he's all over the battlefield, I have to say. 
Um, do you know that's uh, that's interesting because in 1917 he's actually drawing pictures of the battlefield of the of the Somme. So he's actually t- painting the pictures after the Battle of the Somme in that period when when the Germans are withdrawn back to the Hindenburg Line. But anyway, so I was just thinking to myself here. We had the same to, the same yeah. thing with the official photographers came in, yeah. and a lot of the key photos we know of the Somme, you know, in ruins, were actually taken earlier in 1917 after the fighting had died down. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? It's it is not necessarily the same view that the, the soldiers no. had of it at the time. Correct. Yeah, um, uh, he was, and he actually also kept a diary, and his and his diary was published. So he's the only one of the only one of the, uh, if not the only uh, war artist that kept a written record, and that was published in 1921. I've actually got a copy of it. It's called An Onlooker in France, um, uh, where he kept a record of what he was painting, where he was painting, which is very helpful because sometimes we don't get the, the all of the stories. Um, he he actually describes the fact that what he's setting out to do is to provide a textual and visual record of life on the Western Front as well as behind the lines. And, of course, that's where we are now, so we're going to be kind of looking at some of the pictures that he did behind the lines. And in his book, An Onlooker in France, 1917-1919, he describes Castle. So this is why I, I, I like it, because he also painted the place... Um, and certainly we'll be putting up some of these uh, uh, on the um, the website associated with the podcast so we can actually see some of his paintings. Um, and um, he describes it as a picturesque little spot with its glazed tiles and sprinkling of Spanish buildings and the view from it marvellous. On a clear day, one could see practically the whole line from Newport to Armentiers and the coast from Newport to Boulogne. So you get an idea of the type of view that you, uh, that you would've ha- uh, would have had. He also, you would have to say, I'm going to be polite here, he, he socialised in the town quite a bit. Um, and there was something called the Hotel Sauvage. I just call it the Hotel <laughs> Savage. The Hotel Savage, um, which was a, re- a really good watering hole and was well used. Actually, I've just been reading up, literally as I was waiting uh, to, to start the podcast, I just found a great little site which was describing the same hotel's use for almost what it was being used for in the, in the, in the Great War, being used again in the Second World War prior to the Germans arriving, uh, which I found was quite interesting. So I'll just describe what he says about the uh, the hotel in this book, uh, the, An Onlooker in France. The dining room with its long row of windows showed the wonderful view like the Rubens landscape in the National Gallery. It was packed every night for the most part with fighting boys from the salient who had come in for a couple of hours to eat, drink, play the piano and sing, forgetting their misery and discomfort for the moment. It was enormously interesting to watch and study what happened in that room. One saw gaiety, misery, fear, thoughtfulness and unthoughtfulness all mixed up like a kaleidoscope. It was a well-run, romantic little hotel built round a small courtyard which was always noisy with the tramp of cavalry horses and the rattle of harness. The hotel was managed by Madame Lurius. Lurius? <laughs> Let's try again. Lurius and their two daughters, Suzanne and Blanche, who were known as the Peaches. Suzanne was undoubtedly <laughs> the queen of the Eep salient. So you get an idea of why soldiers are going there as well, to uh, rather attractive young ladies. The Peaches. <laughs> Um, he also talks about the press basing themselves here. So some of the, I won't bother naming them all, but some of the, uh, of the well-known people writing for the Daily Mail, um, other artists basing themselves there. So it was, uh, an interesting spot. Um, this is another little comment he made that really made me laugh. 
It was at uh, Castle I first began to realise how wonderful the women of the working class in France were, how absolutely different and infinitely superior they were to the same class at home. In fact, no class in England corresponded to them at all. Clean, neat, prim women working from early dawn to late at night, apparently with unceasing energy. They never seemed to tire and usually wore a smile. I want one of these women. <laughs> I want her. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, so, wow. Uh, that um, uh, yeah. speaks volumes. That speaks volumes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's some, uh, I won't do some of the other anecdotes. I have scribbled down a few more, but it's it's more of the same, really. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting I absolutely character. love that. I love that because we don't often get such vivid articulate descriptions of, of this life in an estaminet, yeah. you know, a bar behind the lines where soldiers come to to literally blow off steam as we see in these instances yeah. but um i'd love to get a, a psychologist on the podcast pete to talk about this whole concept of yeah men once they're out of, you know constantly under you know the stress of imminent death and yeah. then for a few days out of the line and and what yeah. effect that has on them psychologically and i think we start to see the effects in that brief description but it's yeah i I can't begin to comprehend what it must be like because you know i mean us soft modern people you know if i have a bad day at work i think (laughs) oh i could do with a break or you know yeah but imagine every day in day out the risk of your body being torn limb from limb for years at a time what that meant when you finally got a night off to have a drink and a you know and play the piano with your mates how how you would uh how you would uh, how you would take that opportunity it's just fascinating I'm going to read just one more excerpt because it just <laughs> made, made me laugh out loud. Uh, on some evenings, we used to give great entertainment in the kitchen of the uh, Sauvage. I would stand the drinks and howl it. My chauffeur, my chauffeur, played the mouth organ and Green, my Batman, step danced. It was an amusing sight watching the expression of those old fat Flemish workmen of the hotel. <laughs> So it's just, it's just, it's just it's well worth reading. If you get an opportunity to pick up a copy, go and have a look. It's, uh, it must yeah. have been, for the local people of France and Belgium, it must have been a love-hate relationship with the yeah. soldiers of the British Empire. They must yeah. have been extremely grateful that they were there defending their homes from the, you know, the nasty Germans. But yeah. at the same time, little was safe. Little was yeah. sacred from their alcohol to their pianos to their daughters. <laughs> I were, agree uh, were at yeah. risk. <laughs> uh, interesting. I'm just going to quick do the titles of some of the pictures that he painted while he was there, just to give you a, a, a feel. So, Soldiers and Peasants, ca- uh, Castle 1917. German planes visiting Castle. So, these are Germans uh, trying to bomb the town. My Workroom Castle, which is basically all of his, both his artistic gear and his military gear, because remember, he is a major, um, and so he's got his helmet and his uh, rabbit skin jacket that went on the outside of his of his tunic, and uh, then we have another picture, the Household Brigade passing through the uh, uh, t- uh, through uh, to the Eep Salient, so that's them going out one of the fortified gateways, uh, w- which is still there, exactly the same, no change. And then one that I really like, the courtyard, the courtyard of the Hotel uh, Savage, Savage in uh, uh, in Castle. So he's even got that that portrait of what he was describing. And then ready to start, a self-portrait, uh, taking in the mirror of him with all his gear on, ready to go out to do some paintings out in, in, in the actual field. And then, then he's, uh, one of the final ones, goodbye. 
and it's a soldier waving to a woman uh, who he's obviously met while he's been there, who's standing in a doorway uh, with a doorway in the town. So, so fascinating. I also downloaded a couple of posts, uh, f- um, a couple of images that of the portraits. Marshall Foch, so he's painted him. He painted uh, Haig uh, and Plummer. So the three people we've already mentioned, he actually paints. While some of them, while he's there in the town, others after. Um, but he's uh, it gives you an idea of his social standing. He was very, uh, very. Uh, uh, a very high class uh, uh, officer and knew all the right people and was able to go in and paint these people the great and good at various times during after and before the war in fact i'm looking at some of the um the the paintings that he did while in the town peter he's got a fascinating style hasn't he very bright he has. quite unexpected i thought it was going to be dull and no, but very yeah. bright almost uh, yeah. surrealist impressionist some of these paintings he, he, they're, they're fascinating certainly yeah, do was, check them out just go and have yeah. a look at uh, william uh, at uh, is it william Warpen? Yeah, William Orpen yeah, on um, yeah. on uh, on Google Image Search. Just some fascinating ones. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so so I, I think he's, what he does, he brings a town to life in that period that we're talking about, the Great War, when when it became such an important uh, location behind the behind the lines. Well, that was a um, that was a tangent, Pete, but one well worth taking. It's um, and yeah. it really does bring. I know it's a cliche to say it, but it does bring it to life when we can actually see what the soldiers mm. saw and uh, not just our modern view of the town. Yeah, and what I should say is from sitting in our <clears throat> our bar where we are now, we can actually see that building. We can see it's still described. It's actually a restaurant now, but it's uh, it's still got a sign above it. It has actually altered slightly uh, because it must have been badly damaged in the Second World War, but it's in the same location. It's got the same sign over it saying what it is. It's the, the hotel... Uh, <laughs> savage um and um uh yeah so so we can see it from where we're sitting which is which is great as i said we don't have to move for an awful lot of these podcasts but we uh we are about to move because what we're going to do is we're actually going to walk um along through the square so we're going to turn right now we're going to stand up go to our right walk through the uh the grand place out down the road we could do a shortcut up to the top but i like to go round, and we're going to go into the the next uh the next square um and from there we're going to uh walk up why i'm going to go here is just going to mention it because we're going to talk about it in a little while this is where the british army in 1940 in this smaller square very close to the grand place i can't actually think of what the name of it is it doesn't really matter um it's here that they set up their headquarters for the defense of the of the the the, the hilltop this is where in 19 uh, 1940 they decided to defend from here um and then we're going to carry on walking around and we're going to uh, to head up to the uh, the garden uh, of the mont du <laughs> Here we go again. Recollet. I suspect it looks like Recollets, so it could be Recollets. So how are we going to say it? Uh, the Garden, the Jardin, the Mont de Recollet, uh, possibly. Well, that was good. That, that well sounded good. Well I was convinced. I, sound con- good. I convinced myself then that sounded all right. Uh, and that's where we're going to go. And so we're going to walk up there. It's and like Macron we- was in the room. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is where we're going to get our fantastic views. So beautiful gardens, extensive gardens, lovely to go up there in the summer uh, when you've got a, a little breeze and it's very hot and you just get the most wonderful views across to the coast, uh, across to Ypres on our, uh, our right. The, the coast is directly in front of us. We've also got historic things all around us. The entrance to a crypt of uh, 
here we go again, Roberic de Free, Count of Flanders, and he died in 1093, and there's a crypt, uh, the entrance to a crypt where he's 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 buried. There's that monument to Foch, um, unveiled by President uh, uh, Pointscare in 1928, and it is, in fact, a replica of the one that stands in uh, Grosvenor Gardens near Victoria Station in London. So it's uh, another casting of that, of that, uh, that same statue. There's also a full-size windmill here, uh, directly in front of us, which is again a replica, a replica of a windmill that from the 16th century. And apparently, at one time, there were over 20 windmills on on the top of the hill here within the town. So, uh, uh, for obvious reasons, it's on the top of the hill and it's windy. Um, there's also a monument here to the three big battles that we're not going to talk about: 1071, 1328, and 1677. Uh, look them up yourselves, guys, to see what was going on there. It's very complicated, but it was lots of just, big battles in the area. Just that note again. So it's a span of 600 years and almost yeah. evenly distributed. Three large battles at you know, the 11th yeah. century, the 14th century, and the 17th century. I tell you what, the, the generations of Castle were used to foreign armies marching through their town. Yeah, well, the very, very interesting point that you make there. Now, this is one of those apocryphal stories that possibly isn't true, and so I should state this before I make this comment, but during the French Revolutionary Wars, this is where we get the poem, the grand old Duke of York, who marched 10,000 men, he marched them up to the top of the hill, and he marched them down again. I'm not going to do the rest of it. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so this is this is where the, the hill that supposedly he's marching his men up and down. Now this has been poo pooed in recent years, but uh, I still like to a lot of these stories. Let's stick to the story. It's a good old story. This is where those men marched up the top and marched back down again during the Flanders campaign in about 1793. Well, there you go. That I didn't know. Why was he doing that? Why was he marching his? <laughs> He's Matt, ten, Matt, 10 battalions We're not doing this history we, You know we don't know much about it So we're going to avoid that um, The other one that I found was interesting I found a quote from Benjamin Disraeli uh, Disraeli who we will later become The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom And he stayed here for a month In the September of 1845 And he wrote a, a letter to his sister Which said An extremely savage place Few of the inhabitants and none of the humbler classes taught French. There is no library, bookshop seller, nor newspaper of any sort. It is quite French Flanders. Their provisions come from Holland. The Hotel de Ville was built up by the Spanish. The Carillon are perpetually sounding and religion is supreme. <laughs> That's what he wrote. So I don't think Disraeli was particularly impressed. There's a bit of a common theme in all these quotes. The one you, uh, the ones you read earlier as well. There's a bit of a, there's a bit of a um, British arrogance in all these quotes about the working classes of the continent, isn't there? I never noticed. Never noticed. <laughs> yeah, there is I like definitely. It. I like yeah, it. yeah, there is. Uh, there is definitely. It's a good insight, though, isn't it? Because uh, you know we talk about the class systems, and obviously the people that we're describing writing these things are well educated and from the upper classes. And yeah. They're, yeah. Um, Sometimes patronising care, but often <laughs> right disregard for the working classes of France. Quite Indeed. Right, so what I'm going to go on to now is because, obviously, we're up on the top, we can see these fantastic views, and we need to talk about 1940 and the defence, or the attempted defence, just for a few days. Uh, I mean, the British Army was in utter disarray. I've been trying to pull together what units were, were, were fighting here in 1940, and predominantly, there were all sorts of units, and in fact, it's very difficult to... People came and helped, and then drifted away again, heading towards Dunkirk. 
but effectively the task of defending this hill was left to the 2nd Battalion of the Gloucestershire Regiment, uh, the 4th Battalion of the Oxen Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, and they managed to hold on to the town for three days uh, as part of a defensive screen uh, around Dunkirk uh, during that period as we're falling back to the Dunkirk, uh, um, well this is the Dunkirk perimeter as we're falling back literally to the, to the, the beaches um, between the 27th of May 1940 and the 30th of, uh, of May 1940 so that's the period that they're holding on to it now there's an interesting can, and very... can I just say sorry Pete, I yeah. just wanted to say here yeah. I think this is really important not to overlook the this is the real heroics of the Dunkirk is. evacuation isn't it we, yeah. we focus on the small ships and we focus on the 300,000 troops on the beach and getting them all off and absolutely amazing obviously an incredible story but this is the bravery is the tiny detachments of British troops who'd effectively just been ordered to hold the Germans as long as you possibly can. Yeah. And every every hour that you hold the Germans off is another 10 or 20 of your comrades that we can get off the beaches. Just incredible heroism. And um, so many of these men paid the, paid the price for it. Well, indeed. In fact, all of these paid the price in one way or another because what actually happened, they didn't receive the order to fall back until a day late. There was a confusion, and by the time they received the order to fall back, Dunkirk had gone. So these guys hold on to beyond the evacuation, and then they, they say, right, we've just received the order to fall back, but it's a day late, and they didn't make it. So they were either uh, killed, uh, taken prisoner, and a very few who managed to move down the coast, uh, but most of them were, were were captured later on. So these guys do not escape. These these are, are, are giving their lives or are giving their freedom for the evacuation uh, on on Dun- uh, Dunkirk or from Dunkirk. Absolutely extraordinary. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the, the defensive yeah, so castle during this time? There's a very, very good... I mean, we're not going to go into the whole story because it is quite extensive. And in great detail, I have to say, in preparing for this podcast, I've been finding more and more information and I'm actually really enthused about about kind of pulling together a bit more of a story for when when I take uh, and the walking the walking tour and we do it in detail and literally walk around and, and point out where some of the some of these actions uh, are taking place because it's, it's fairly well written up. And you can tell it's taken some time for these accounts to come out because a lot of these guys were prisoners and it's not until their later life that they they write them um the one that i was using quite a bit is from the commanding officer of the second gloucestershire regiment uh, who before his capture he and obviously after his capture he, he wrote it up uh, uh, very well and so i'll just do a, a couple of excerpts from uh, his extensive notes and diary and then account of of, uh, of what happened um, so I'll just start, start in an odd place, but you'll get the gist. This was probably the first time any member of the battalion that had ever heard of the place. This is uh, Castle itself. As it happens, this is a site that has been the scene of many battles uh, figuring in history right back to the Middle Ages. So just what we've been seeing, saying, and no doubt beyond them into Roman times. It is a small town of about 2,000 inhabitants perched on the top of a uh, and around a hill which rises some 500 feet from the surrounding flat plains of French Flanders. So he's repeating really what we've been said. The battalion reached Castle after a journey of some uh, vicissitude vicissitude that's the right in the early not a word i use very often in the early morning of saturday the 25th of may up till this date it had been a regular battalion of the 145th infantry brigade uh, commanded by brigadier uh, uh, somerset 
But on its arrival at its destination, it was found that one battalion, the Bucks Regiment, had been diverted to occupy Hasbrook. And what you can start feeling straight away here, units are going all over the shop. They're they're firefighting, trying to plug gaps where the Germans are coming through. From now onwards, the battalion was part of a mixed force, still under Brigadier Somerset, which included the 4th Ox and Bucks, Light Infantry, some RFA, 18-pounders, machine gunners from a TA battalion of the Cheshire Regiment, uh, a brigade uh, anti-tank unit, and some French army elements, mainly anti-tank and machine gun units. There were also some Royal Engineers, Royal Royal Signers and Royal Army Medical Corps personnel. It's a mishmash of people trying to hang on on this on this ridge, uh, and they will fight so hard for three days. Uh, terrible casualties, um, especially the eighteen pounders being moved about from defensive position. They're knocking out German tanks. They're going to be attacked by by tanks. And it just goes on and on. And it is it is tough reading as he lists the people being mortally wounded, dying, being wounded and captured, disappearing. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, uh, very extensive notes detailing the, the losses uh, and literally the individuals lost. I mean, I can perceive by the time we do the walking tour that a lot of these guys are buried in the local cemetery and that's where we're going to walk to next that it's um, uh, an extension to the uh, the civil cemetery here and it's on the road the road out one of the roads out of the uh, out of the town towards Dunkirk um and uh, I, th- I think we'll be able to find a lot of these guys that are uh, commented upon and mentioned as being uh, sadly losing their lives will be buried in the local cemetery now, interestingly i nearly made a blunder prior to uh, to to uh, talking uh, doing this podcast because i just automatically in this area i presume that commonwealth wargrave cemeteries are great war with a smattering of uh, second world war and here totally second world war the the uh, the, the cemetery here that the commonwealth wargrave cemetery is totally second world war uh, uh people here and we're going to talk about some of the people that are in there or particularly one which is very interesting uh, a little later on Tells a hell of a story, Pete, doesn't it? I mean, when you when you described that mismatch of yeah, that mishmash of units, including some French troops thrown in there, the word that just popped into my head was cohesion. In order to defend against a determined enemy, you need to know who's on your left and right, and what weapons they've got, and how much ammunition they've got, and who their commanding officer is. Imagine what it means for for all these individual little half battalions and companies and. Each yeah. of them would have a different officer who you've never met them before. You don't know their yeah. capabilities. How do you in any way put together a defence in that, in that yeah. environment? And yet they did. For three days, they held off a, a really concentrated both air attacks and ground attacks by tanks and, and infantry. Um, so they did exactly what they were actually supposed to do. The, the sad thing is they were then supposed to pull out and get to the beaches in time, and that, that doesn't happen. I'm just going to read the final part that's uh, actually in another unit's accounts. Very few, very few of this garrison succeeded in reaching the beaches. This was uh, sadly... Uh, a gallant end to a great fight, fight which had proved of inestimable uh, value to the British Expeditionary Force. For the last most critical days of the retreat, the five important roads of which Castle was the centre had been denied to the enemy and secured to its comrades by the courage of this doomed de- detachment. Another account I've said it uh, describes it as the Alamo of the BEF um, uh, here, which I thought was actually quite uh, instantly gives you an idea of uh, of what's. Uh, of what's going on well that word that word doomed when you just said that literally yeah. sent a shudder a shudder through me that it's just yeah. uh, heroism of the highest order I, you cannot even begin to imagine what those men what they went through and what their feelings were about doing it in order to try and save as much of their as many as their comrades 
on the beach as they could. Just extraordinary, yeah. mate. Extraordinary. Yeah. And sadly, uh, many of them lie in the cemetery that we're going to visit. They, they do. And so that's where we're going to walk down. It's a, a little walk because it's a, about, a, I don't know, two kilometres perhaps uh, down to the to the cemetery. It's on one of the winding roads. And this is probably during the walk into the way that we will also head out of the town and, and down to the base. Um, and uh, it's a, a communal cemetery extension. So in other words, it's the civil cemetery. And what they've done is added a military aspect to it. Um, so we know this was a rear area uh, during the uh, during the Great War, the battlefield during uh, during the Second World War, and so what we have here are, are predominantly uh, soldiers who die in 1940, uh, also a few who died in 1944, and of course that's the period when we're retaking the area. So there are a few, a few there, and there's, there are some airmen there. There are also a few French soldiers. These are the guys that were defending some Czech soldiers, and those are guys that retook this area in 44. They are buried there as well. So we have a a mixture in the cemetery, but it's all Second World War, which was actually a big surprise to me. In this area where we have a lot of casualty clearing stations, a lot of wounded dying in this area, uh, I expected there to be a smattering of, uh, of First World War burials, but no, it's it's totally uh, Second uh, Second World War. Now, I have to say, I have not visited this, uh, this gentleman's grave, and it's one that I want to go to, and I've wanted to go to it, and I've been aware of this grave for a long time. And it's just a fascinating story. This is the grave of Sergeant William James Smith, and he's in the Australian Air Force, and he's a Spitfire pilot. And so I'm going to tell the story, because it's just worthwhile rip, you know, telling a smattering of his story as to how he comes to be buried in this, this cemetery. So I'm going to read a little bit because just so I get it, I get it right. So this is in the October of uh, 2011. And I was aware of this right from the start. Um, there was a historian and an, an exhumate. Well, well, they are amateur. Uh, people recovering crashed aircraft. Uh, some of you may be aware of this. There are people that go out and look for crashed aircraft, try and find them uh, in the uh, in the, the European countryside. Some of them uh, are bomber crews, and the tra- and, and in a lot of cases, they, the dead have been removed. What they're looking for are engines and just remnants of the of the planes to either display uh, locally or to take back to museums in Britain or or elsewhere. Well, this is a bit more interesting. This was a, a team with a with a historian and a film crew. And they were looking for an aircraft, uh, a Spitfire, that had been paid for um, or financed and, and sponsored by the Parker Pen Company. So the, that's, that was the route that this documentary was going to go down. It was going to go down as telling the story of this Spitfire that, that had been uh, financed by the Parker and sponsored by the Parker Pen Company. So they went to this village that is where they thought the, the plane uh, uh, may be. Uh, and the village is called Hardy Fort. It's not that far away from where we are in uh, in Castle. And uh, they went to the people there. And, and literally, the first thing you do is, does anybody remember a plane crashing close by? And interestingly, the ex-mayor, a, a chap called uh, Jean Bogart, um, who was 89, he said he remembered as a young man uh, seeing a Spitfire crash uh, near the village. So, of course, they thought, that's the one. We need to go and, and get it. The pilot had bailed out, so there there shouldn't have been uh, anybody in the plane. So they start to do their archaeological dig. They're recovering the parts of the plane. And to their amazement, they find that there's a crewman still in the plane. So the pilot is there. Very quickly, they find his identity disc, which still survived. 
And he's proved to be an Australian pilot. And uh, his number 400942WJ Smith of the Royal Australian Air Force, um, who in fact was a sergeant. So he's a, a senior in, so since you're flying, a flying officer, he's not actually an officer, not a commissioned officer. He was a, a, a sergeant flying a Spitsfire. He was just about to be commissioned. He was 24 years old. And so just extraordinary. So it wasn't at all what they expected. Um, his parents were from Adelaide he's, uh, 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 and he was living in uh, Whittlesea in, in Victoria. Um, we went to Melbourne uh, High School. Uh, we've got a whole description of, of, of what he was like from his service file. Um, and he's going to be buried with full military honours on the 19th of April 2012, where we're standing now in the, in, in the cemetery at, uh, at Castle. I, and I just found it extraordinary and, and very, very moving when I read the whole story and that, that interesting story of him not being the man they thought he was going to be. It's not the plane that, that, that they thought it was going to be. Um, he's commemorated in, in multiple locations. He's, he's actually commemorated on the Runnymede Memorial in, in Surrey in the UK, and that's the memorial to the missing air crew of the, of the Second World War. Um, uh, but, of course, he's still on there, but he's not missing any longer. He has his own grave. We're standing in front of it. The plane wreckage went to Le Coupole, which is the famous V1 uh, museum um, near St. Irma. And so uh, I presume I've not been that we can see the remnants of, uh, of his plane there, uh, there as well. Um, and so I just... Uh, yeah, I find it fascinating. That I found a lovely account um, when he was buried. His brother came, which I find is just amazing. His brother, still alive, came to the ceremony. And in he wrote, I tried so hard to fill his shoes when I was growing up. Um, that's what he said. Uh, and then his final words were, Bill, you will always be uh, to us that dashing, handsome fighter pilot who gave his life for us, for his family, for his country and for the people of France. We shall never forget. And that was what he said during the, the, uh, the funeral service. There was then a, 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 a full volley of, uh, of rifle fire from the, uh, the Australian Federation Guard and the laid wreaths and, and the ode and everything else we expect from one of these ceremonies. I wish I'd been there. I wish I'd had the, the time to go there. And I think I learnt about it just after it had all taken place. But uh, yeah, and so I've still not physically stood uh, 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 in front of his grave. So I'm looking forward to uh, to returning to, to go and see this grave. That is what you call an extraordinary story, Pete. I, it is, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. I, I had heard the stories of an Australian pilot recovered in northern yeah. France, but I didn't know the specifics, and I certainly didn't know he was buried here. So, wow, amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, Lovely, isn't it? I, I, I was thinking that as you were describing it. Obviously, the, the mayor had the wrong plane or his memory had become clouded over well, they the would, years. No, they so. wouldn't. I don't think they would know. I've actually heard it before that so many planes crashed in that period during the Second World War as they uh, they flew over that that people just got confused as to where it was. So so it's interesting to kind of comment upon, isn't it? That means that the other Spitfire is close by somewhere. They just haven't found it yet because they didn't find it, so they don't know where it is. But it, but the other one will be somewhere in the area. Was it? Did you say he was a nineteen forty four casualty? Uh, you know, I've. Uh... <laughs> Where's my notes gone? (laughs) That's always the issue, isn't it? Two distinct phases of the Second World War went on here. I'm assuming 44. uh, Yeah, I'm sure it was. Let me just check when he he was killed. So, um, this must be on here somewhere. Where is it? We'll just chat amongst ourselves. Um, 9th of May, 1942. So, oh, okay. uh, so, so what it is, 
It's in a period when we are taking the, so I know exactly what's going on here. In 1942, what we're doing is we're trying to take the war to the Germans a, a, a bit because, because remember, 42, nothing is really going our way. It, 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 it's, it's at a period when Spitfires are being sent out to basically shoot up, uh, targets of, uh, of opportunity. Um, I'll just read, I didn't read it out, so it's, it's well worth saying what it, what it, on the 9th of May, 1942, Spitfire BM-180, uh, of 457 Squadron 9 Group, um, and I know they were based in the Isle of Man, one of 12 aircraft detailed to carry out a, uh, an operational sortie over enemy territory in France. Um, while uh, flying at 26,000 feet, um, they were seen to be engaged by uh, a large number of enemy fighters, over 20 enemy Fokker Wolf 190s, um, and they, uh, this is when they were on their fl- way home, and BM-180 failed to return. Uh, in the squadron's operation record book, Sergeant Smith's commanding officer wrote, he was a good pilot, popular, a quiet, calm way of going about his duties, giving confidence to fellow pilots, and he had been recommended for a, a for a, a commission. So, um, yeah, so uh, he, yeah, that's how he lost his life uh, in combat, aerial combat with Fokker Wolf 190, 190s on their way back. Seems almost reckless, doesn't it, sending 12... Fighters yeah. that far over, you know, yeah. enemy occupied France. It, it just, it seems, uh, yeah, it I know was they're trying a- to take the war to the Germans, but Th- that's that seems, exactly what um, they're doing. That yeah. seems reckless. Yeah, well, interestingly, during this period, 1941-1942, a lot of the pilots that had fought in the Battle of Britain, that we kind of uh, know an awful lot about the Battle of Britain, but a lot of them lost their lives, survived the Battle of Britain and lost their lives at this period, taking their Spitfires into into France. And in fact, uh, we go past one quite often, Matt. You know, when we go to Fromel and we're driving from the Cobbers Memorial Park and we drive up to the Pheasant uh, uh, Wood Cemetery and the museum... Oh, on the fork in the road yeah on the left on the left hand side um there is uh, i think he's called bramble i think he's sergeant bramble um and uh yeah i'm fairly certain he is so sergeant bramble and he lost his life in uh, uh, 1941 in a spitfire doing exactly uh, the same thing so uh, on a mission over there and he was he was shot down there and his his aircraft crashed close to where that little memorial is I recall um, speaking to a very old lady in Fromel um, in the early 2000s when I was first over there, and um, her saying she recalled that that uh, seeing that Spitfire go down, and she said yeah. that he uh, he successfully bailed out, but his parachute failed to open. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking. <laughs> it end, is. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah all the, isn't it there again? If you, when you're travelling through the battlefield area, dear listener, look out for these little memorials. They tell yeah. amazing stories. Yeah. There was one I came across. And last time I was on the Western Front, some obscure little corner, I was looking at a battle, and it was a memorial to two British pilots that had been killed in the First World War um, yeah. when their plane crashed in the area. So just private little memorials from families and loved ones back yeah. home. Just extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. We, we have one just in the next village. It was literally in the next village uh, to a, a chap called Hawker, uh, a British fighter race, and literally opposite where my children go to school, there's just a memorial there. Now, most people won't, when they visit the battlefields, they won't know it's there. It's just hidden away. There's not, I don't think it's written, I don't ever think I've seen it written up anywhere. Um, but it's a memorial there that opposite the school uh, to uh, uh, to Hawker, uh, who, uh, who was killed uh, just on the outskirts of the village. Extraordinary, Pete. I mean, in terms of sites that people overlook on the battlefields i mean the whole village of of, of castle must <laughs> must fall into that category yeah. so yeah. it's been really yeah. it's been really wonderful mate as i said not a place that i'm particularly familiar with so i've really enjoyed 
you sharing your expertise on this battlefield page. It's yeah. a, a wonderful place. Add it to yeah. the list of sites I can't wait to get over to next time on the Western Front. Just yeah, and, I, and I'm looking forward, I have to say, in doing more research on the place, and I've been there multiple times, uh, I'm looking forward to going back and actually, and actually having a, a, a good old walk uh, around the town in preparation for that walk that, we're, that, that we'll be doing uh, uh, in October. Well, if you want to join Pete on that tour, there are still some places left. It's only a small group tour. Uh, so the Battle Tactics on the Western Front tour, leaving in October, it is targeted specifically at Australians. But if you're British or Canadian or American, one of our international listeners, there is a lot that you can take out of that tour as well. We already have a, a Brit and an American booked on the tour, so it's going to be quite an international group. Um, but I think it's, is it 14 walks you're doing, Pete, over a period of, of, of eight is, yeah. or nine two, days? Two a day. Yeah, two, uh, two a day with a rest day in the middle. Yeah, in the footsteps of specific units on the battlefield. Yeah. So we will go to yeah. a battlefield, we will talk about a unit that fought there, and we will walk the entire battlefield in their footsteps. It's going to be an incredible insight into how the First World War was fought and what those men went through covering that yeah. ground. And, and one of the highlights is going to be going to Castle and walking pretty much where we've done on this tour, going and seeing the sights and, yeah. and, and getting an impression of what life was like for the soldiers behind yeah. the line. And I'm sure you'll touch on that World War Two history as well, Pete. Yeah, we are. We're going to do. We're going to cover all, all history. I might even do some of the the earlier history. Who knows? <laughs> Fantastic! It's going to be a great tour. It's not a standard battlefield tour by any means. It doesn't go to the museums, and it doesn't cover every battlefield site, of course, because we we have handpicked ones that we feel tell the story of the First World War. But wow, it's a unique tour. No one else is doing a tour like this, and absolutely extraordinary. So, if you want to walk with Pete Smith, I mean, I'm jealous that I'm not going on it myself. <laughs> but if you want to walk with Pete Smith. Um, on the on the ground that we're describing in these podcasts, um, there's there's no better opportunity than our battle tactics on the Western Front tour. So you can find out information about that on our website battlefields.com.au. But it's going to be an extraordinary journey. And Pete, this has been an extraordinary journey. Thank, I've really enjoyed this one. So thank you so much for sharing your your insights into the town of Castle. Pleasure, Matt. And we'll see you next week. Yep, looking forward to it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member 
For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.